With Valentine's Day in our minds, love is in the air. And romance is especially fun when you find it on the road. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. And on today's Travel with Rick Steves, we're heading for some very romantic destinations. Travel expert Don George joins me in a moment. He'll help me field your calls and emails about romantic destinations any time of year. And we'll bat around some ideas on connecting with the locals, whether or not love is on your itinerary. Later, Jennifer Cox tells us about her experiment to travel around the world in 80 dates, searching for Mr. Right. And we'll call a friend of mine in Tuscany to find out just what makes life special in the romantic destination he and his American wife call home. Ah, Tuscany. We'll also enjoy a cute song about a vacation romance and hear the latest batch of travel haikus from our listeners. Stay with us for the hour ahead as we put a little romance into our adventures. It's all on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. Love is today's theme on Travel with Rick Steves, and we're getting ready to hear from some experts. Later, we'll call one of my Tuscan friends to hear about the multisensory pleasures of Central Italy. And we'll hear one woman's delightful story of planning a trip around the world looking for Mr. Wright. Let's start with travel expert Don George as we field your calls and emails for advice to help plan your travels. We're at 877-333-RICK and radio at ricksteves.com. Melanie from uh, Claiborne, Texas, emailed us. She says, my fiancé and I want a honeymoon in Europe in May, and we're having a hard time figuring out where to go. They've already been to Italy, so they want someplace else. Any suggestions on a good place to relax and enjoy European history and culture? Well, May, but not Italy. See, I think Italy is such a romantic place, and Lago di Como, Siena, Cinque Terre, they come to mind, Venice. Uh, But outside of Italy, my most romantic destinations would be maybe Hallstatt, two hours south of Salzburg. This is where the locals commune with nature up in the lakes. Gorgeous little town bullied onto a ledge between a mountain and it's kind of a fjord. Dingle Peninsula on the southwest of Ireland, where you've got all this traditional Irish culture. Great cuisine now on the west coast of Ireland. And the south coast of Portugal, very relaxed and romantic and sunny and great seafood. Plenty of people that do creative things to help tourists have a good time, take you out fishing, hikes in the interior and so on. Don, when you think about world travel and honeymoons, what are your favorite romantic destinations? Bali is certainly an incredibly romantic destination. Get out away from the really touristed parts of Bali, and it's absolutely magical. But you've got to be careful to get away from uh, the drunken Australians on Kuta Beach. <laughs> That's I think. right. You get away from them. <laughs> get away up, from the drunken Australians on Kuta <laughs> and all the cruise groups. That's right. North coast of Bali. Very nice. Very nice. And and the Maldive Islands is a spectacular place, too. Um, this is uh, off the coast of Sri Lanka, off of India. Uh, you basically get your own island, essentially. You're sort of a private island. There'll be a little tiny resort with perhaps five or six thatched roof palapas. And there you are. It's hard to get much more romantic than that. Don, you got the Maldive Islands, you got the Andamar Islands, and the Nicobar Islands or something like that. Right, this. right. Now, these are these countries that are like one meter above sea level in the Indian Ocean. Is that's that right, right? That's right. Now, how did they weather the tsunami and what's going on with global warming and the rising sea for these countries? The tsunami had a very significant effect, but happily they are recovering very well. Tourism has come back. That's absolutely integral to their economies. So it's great that travelers are coming back. Global warming is a concern, not immediately, but but down the road, certainly. For the time being, they are very much dependent on tourism. So it's important that people go there, appreciate the local culture, and give by being there back to the local culture because they, they need your help. I'm talking with Don George from Lonely Planet, and you're traveling with Rick Steves. We got Sam on the line in Irvine, California. Hi, Sam. Hi, Rick. How are you? Great. Thanks for your call. What's your question? Well, we went to Paris, and my wife and I enjoyed it very much. We're considering going back again during the off season, during the winter, to take advantage of the cheaper airfares. Do you have any thoughts about whether the cons of going in the off season outweigh the pros? You know, Sam, I got to tell you, I really can't think of any cons of going to Paris in the off season. The days are shorter, and it's colder. Well, you could get bad weather, so I guess those are cons. But the pros are you don't have the heat and the sweat and the crowds and the frustration and the short-tempered locals in the off-season as you do in the summer. My wife and I go to Paris routinely in the winter for a one-week break. We enjoy flights for half the price. 
Uh, we find plenty of good rooms available at great prices off-season, and the museums are wide open. We get an early start. We dress warm because it gets dark earlier. We want to be out there and, and getting around in the morning. And I just remind people that it's cold, and it's not like the cold we have at home here in the winter where you're going from your car to the office or the, mm-hmm. from your car to the shop. It's cold. You're outdoors for great stretches at a time. Therefore, you want to dress almost like you're skiing. You're going to be out enjoying the park at Versailles uh, without any tourist crowds, and you're going to be glad to have heavy shoes and a heavy coat and mittens and a hat. But I honestly don't see any downside to Paris in the winter other than uh, the the climate that I, I mentioned. Don? I agree completely. I lived in Athens for a year, and the most remarkable, wonderful gift of living there for a year was the ability to go to a place like the Acropolis in the dead of winter and be the only person wandering around those ruins. They, uh-huh. were, they were mine. As Rick said, the great museums, the great restaurants, there will be fewer people there. And also, the people who are there will be locals. So you'll have a much better experience of connecting with the locals. And the guards are in a good mood at the chateaus <laughs> in the Loire. You're just, I've been in the, at Chenonceau, you know, that gorgeous chateau that drapes over the river there, the postcard sort of pretty chateau, a big log fire going, and one guard hanging out, and I had the palace all to myself with a big crackling oh, fire. I that mean, sounds wonderful. It's, it's, it's really great. <laughs> You're so, going to have a good time. So just bundle up. I notice more and more people are traveling off-season. The small towns and the resorts on the beach, this sort of thing, they remind me of canned hams in the winter. But uh, the big cities, culture's wide open. You can make a case that the culture's busier in the winter than it is in the summer. You go to Vienna in the summer, no boys' choir, no opera, no Spanish riding school. They're on vacation just like us. Go in the winter, you got the whole wonderful cultural season at your uh, access. Scott and Terry from Colorado Springs say that we know all about the B&Bs in Europe, but do all countries have the equivalent? And if so, which ones are the best and, and how should I find them? So we know in, in, in Europe we've got Husrum in Norway and Chamberdote in France and Zimmers in Germany. It's a great opportunity to enjoy double the cultural intimacy for half the price by staying in people's homes. What do we have uh, outside of Europe, Don, in the way of uh, opportunities to stay in people's homes rather than hotels? There are absolutely versions of B&Bs in just about every country on the planet. I'll just take one example. In Japan, there's something called the Minshuku, which is very much like a B&B where you're staying in someone's home. Uh, you usually have breakfast with the family, and you get all of the delights of having a local guide to the community. It, it's a wonderful way to travel. What would a Minshuku cost ballpark uh, these days? Oh, $100. For a double. For a double. Does that include breakfast? That includes breakfast. All right. Yeah. Japan's a very expensive country. Losmen, those are popular in, uh, where's that, Thailand? Losmen are popular in Thailand, right. Right. So uh, that would be an example of a humble guest house or B&B. Right. And that might cost you, depending on the setting, $25, $30, $40. All over the world, we find mom-and-pop outfits that are just uh, scrambling little entrepreneurs trying to make a a buck off the tourists. And the backpackers enjoy that. When you go to the wealthy nations these days, you're paying $100 for a double. But it's not unusual to find a a reasonable, safe room for 20 bucks in the developing world. That's right. We've got an email from John in Sacramento. John says, I learn most by talking with people in my travels, talking religions, talking politics. I often end up with real friends rather than just snapshot encounters. Are there sensitivities I should be mindful of when talking religion and politics? Who? Well, that's a very interesting question. I would say, yes, of course, there are sensitivities. Um, You should be aware of what the hot-button topics in the culture and country that you're traveling in at the moment are. At the same time, you should be as forthright as you feel comfortable being. I I find in my own travels that when I am absolutely honest with people in other countries about my opinions and beliefs, I'm rewarded with absolute honesty from them, and we form a really great bond. So I wouldn't try to invent anything or disguise anything. But I do think especially religious topics can be extremely controversial So just feel your way along a conversation. You might even ask someone who you know a little more intimately, someone you trust, what can I not say or what would be really inappropriate to to talk about in this social setting? But uh, pick up the cues from the people around you and you'll have a good sense of what's okay and what may be pushing the envelope too far. When you get into some troubled areas, I think there's just some common sense. When I was in El Salvador, uh, we just had a rule, you don't talk about Nicaragua. That was back mm-hmm. in the in the Sandinista days and so on, and we had a name for Nicaragua. We called it Nebraska. 
So we, <laughs> so we, you know, it just was uh, it was not wise to be talking about Nicaragua while you're in El Salvador during that period. Right. I think when you're talking politics with people, you've got to remember that across the world, I found people do not tie you in with whoever is running your country at the moment. All my life, I've had people telling me, I don't like your president, but I like you. Conversely, a lot of times I've been in a country where I couldn't understand how they could elect this guy, and the people seem pretty together. Mm-hmm. So there's, uh, there's an understanding that democracy is kind of messy, and all across the world, people accept each other as individuals rather than as agents of whoever might be running that country. I find that especially in lands that are struggling in, with democracy and, and dealing with dictators or autocratic governments, they have a hunger for talking with people from America. And you're doing people a huge favor by just being available. You know, if I'm in some country that's in uh, tight times this way, I stand alone at a bar in a, in, a, in a cafeteria or something like this, and people want to get eye contact. And as soon as we get eye contact, we're talking. And I can just feel they've got a hunger because they see me. They don't know if I'm from England or Germany or America, but they see me and they want to talk to me. I agree absolutely. I was in Jordan a few years ago, right before the Iraq War started, and I was just so warmly embraced by all the people I met. And they wanted to know so deeply and fervently what life was like in America, what people thought about the Palestinian issue, for example, what people thought about Israel, what people thought about the government in the United States. And so one thing I would say is don't feel that you need to be intimidated by asking some tough questions. People really love to try to explain what their country is all about, and they also love hearing what your country is is all about. And you can form some incredibly lasting, deep friendships and learn so much and then bring that learning back and educate the people in your community. So I think that's really important. Absolutely. When you're traveling in a country that has struggles, whether it's South Africa and its townships, whether it's Ireland with North Ireland and the tyranny of the majority, talk to people. Nothing wrong with going to Hiroshima and talking about atomic bombs. In fact, I think you're doing people a favor, and you are an ambassador of goodwill as an American to go to these kind of places. It's not reckless or or foolhardy. And open yourself up to discuss things with Europeans, and you'll find that these are the memories more than various palaces and homes of famous dead people that uh, will shine on in your memory. Absolutely agreed. One of the most poignant memories I have is of my first visit to Hiroshima, going through that incredibly moving museum there, looking at the people around me, being filled with tears, And a woman came over to me and patted me on the arm and said, that's all right, that's all right. And we just looked at each other, and there was this incredible understanding between our eyes. It was wonderful. I love that. Sri Lanka, Kashmir, Hiroshima, Nicaragua, Guatemala, North Ireland, plenty of places that are great travel destinations with huge struggles. And what inspires me is this planet is filled with Nathan Hales, Ethan Allens, and Patrick Henrys, all of who only wish they had more than one life to give for their cause. And every year, five languages on this planet go extinct. And for us as travelers to to see these people and to understand these struggles and to have an empathy for them, it just, to me, connects me with this fascinating planet. Jennifer Cox tells us how she planned a round-the-world trip to meet Mr. Wright and exactly where she found him. It's next on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines, with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in some 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.
I'm Rick Steves, and this is Travel with Rick Steves, and we're going to mix a little romance into our travel today because I've got with me a fascinating writer who's just written a book called Around the World in 80 Dates. Travel journalist Jennifer Cox embarked on a journey most single women can only dream about. Like many fellow singles, Jennifer loved her job but hated her love life. Tired of waiting around for Mr. Right, she decided to take a once-in-a-lifetime trip around the world to find her soulmate. She set out to date 80 men in 18 countries on four continents over six months. And right now, she's in our studio to share her adventure. Jennifer Cox, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure. Please don't tell my mother I did all of this. (laughs) (laughs) Around the world in 80 dates. Yeah, it sounds bad, doesn't it? (laughs) Great name for a book. Now, did you you set out to write a book or did you just set out to, to find the right man? Absolutely. I had no intention of writing a book. I had been blessed with a wonderful career. I had worked for Lonely Planet for 10 years. I was a travel presenter in Britain with the BBC. I really was very, very fortunate to have a lot of opportunities to travel the world. And one thing I did notice is that the harder I worked and the more fun I had working, the better I felt about myself. But my love life was not good. So and you took a sabbatical from your work, really, and I put actually, this trip together. I didn't even take a sabbatical. I realized it was so serious that the only way I could get a balance back in my life was by quitting my job and completely applying all of my skills, all of my energy attention to finding the right man for me. You needed love. I needed to trust somebody. Basically, I'd been with somebody for five years who hadn't treated me great. And do you know what? I... Could I had to take part of the blame for myself. Mm-hmm. I just I couldn't just play the victim. And once sure. you realize you have played a role in your own unhappiness, you feel incredibly empowered to actually get the situation right and to work out So you're at in a situation it. where some people could have been satisfied, but you really felt like you only have one life to love and you wanted to do better. Well, that's really the way of putting it. I believe that life is short and mm-hmm. I had been successful and I was thankful, but I really wanted to be happy. Now, how old were you, Jennifer, when you uh, set out on this? I was 37 when I set 37. out. 37. Okay. Yep. And you had a network of uh, people because of your work in travel publishing all exactly. over the world that could help you line up all these dates. Yep. So you, you set up 80 dates all yep. over the world in a six-month period. I wrote a soulmate job description. You were looking for a soulmate, <laughs> but you got to get a job description. Well, part of the reason for this was that I hadn't met them so far. And so the first thing I did, I wrote a relationship resume that helped me look at all my past relationships and the job that I had played, my responsibilities within each relationship. So to be a listener, to be a partner, to be a friend, whatever it was, to understand the pattern of men that I picked. And then my soulmate job description, because I think most of us, if we think about our ideal partner, we tend to think, oh, they'd have tons of money and be amazingly good looking. Mm -hmm. And I realized when I actually sat down and thought about it, I actually wanted someone who was just pretty normal, someone I could talk with, someone... What that did was it made me realize that I tended to pick a certain man and that he didn't make me happy. And so I needed to avoid a certain type of person. So I had a sense of where I'd been. I had a sense of where I wanted to go. And I had something to show my friends to say, look, this is not a sex in the suitcase scenario. I am serious about meeting the right man. And you wanted it's like you wanted to be a a smart shopper. Yeah, exactly. Smart shopper, but also open my life to chance. I think when you're busy working, you tend to be um, someone who enjoys being in charge and in control. And I've realized that that was not a good energy to bring to a relationship. I needed to loosen up a little bit. And so the journey was as much learning about myself, learning to trust myself, understanding who I was as much as then understanding who I needed to be with. Now, you've written a journal of this experience in 370 some pages. Is it mostly a travel? book or is it mostly a, a, a love story? Well, I have to say, I, I think it's probably all of those, and I'm, I'm not sort of copying up by answering mm-hmm. it that way. But, I mean, firstly, I laugh when I think to myself, I probably saved myself thousands of dollars in therapy by writing the book because I had a chance to step back and understand what I'd been through. But one of the things that I said when the – basically, after two weeks, I started getting 200 emails a day from guys saying, you know, oh, I live in St. Petersburg. What day will you be here? Or oh, I'd love to, you know, have you come see me when you're in Barcelona. Um I said to everybody, look, I'd really rather not go out on a dinner date. Right. Because I think that's brilliant. You say in this book that if you don't, right from the start, 
it can be a boring date and you're having a drag and you got to spend the whole rest of the evening eating with somebody, you might as well do something that you know is fun and exactly. you can have a good time even though you know this is never going to go anywhere. Exactly, because the, Smart the, advice. the important thing is it takes a moment, not a meal, to know if they're the one. And I sure. wanted to avoid date fatigue and make sure that I was inspired. Well, I can imagine 80 dates in a row, that could be... Well, exactly. But also, as a traveller, I wanted to see local life and so that was an important part of the dates, to go and see how local people lived and what they did with their time. I'm talking with Jennifer Cox. She just wrote a book called Around the World in 80 Dates. And she spent six months all over the planet uh, going out with guys in 18 different countries. Jennifer, how is the love experience skewed by geography? Um, There definitely are national characteristics. I think that British guys tend to be very anxious, self-deprecating and unsure of themselves with women, which makes them No, you're English, so you can say that with some experience. Exactly, exactly. Some bitterness probably as well. Um, Scandinavian guys, fantastic conversationalists, not macho guys, very good at speaking, very good at listening. So you completely have a fantastic date. Good, smart guys. Europeans... Mediterraneans tend to be old-fashioned romantics. Tell me about this. Young guys, you'd think that's old school, but Mm. this macho stuff survives in the Mediterranean world. Very much. But do you know, very soulful as well. And I wonder, there was a sadness to them, and I wonder if maybe they're starting to feel that that just isn't appropriate anymore. I found that the Mediterranean guys tended to be the most introspective and very sort of full of big gestures, but ultimately, I think, lacking in a sense of how to interact with modern women. Um, something that Australian and New Zealand guys don't have, laid back and very chatty. But I have to say the best daters in the world, not necessarily the most romantic men in the world, but the best daters in the world are American guys. Now, why is that? I think because American guys understand that a date isn't necessarily a marriage or isn't necessarily anything more than two people coming together to see how it goes. And so I think it's more institutionalized over here, whereas in other countries the, the, the boundaries are much more blurred. And I, I sort of the way that I refer to it is like if it's a dance, most nationalities know a few steps. American guys take to the dance floor the hmm. dating dance floor, like Fred Astaire, they know all the moves and they're very confident. So as a woman, you can respond to that confidently because you don't feel any anxiety coming from them. Wow. So now this, I'm talking to Jennifer Cox, who's just explored the world with dating in mind. She's written a book called Around the World in 80 Dates and American Guys. She says that we know how to date better than the other guys. <laughs> no, now that's very no pressure. And, and, and we should mention that after 80 dates, the winning date, I'll, I'll tell you right now, is date number 55, right? Exactly. And it was an American guy. Gary. We'll talk about him later. Gary, sure. yeah. But right now, I just want to still get this cultural overview. You know, men hustle women uh-huh. differently. Uh-huh. You know, Italian men are just like famous yeah. for this sort of thing. What about, you went to some Asian countries in Africa and Latin America and so on. Yeah. Does that change or is, is it just your garden variety, this is a horny guy and he's just hustling me? Well, the thing is, I was serious about meeting the right guy and so my criteria for agreeing to date anybody was that I genuinely had to think they were my soulmate. And so, for example, the guy who emailed from Hong Kong to say, um, I'm, I have a girlfriend but it's not really working out that great and on the off chance we split up by the time you get to Hong Kong, can we stay in conversation with each other? Or the the guy from Indonesia who said, you're not that good looking and you make no effort with your hair. I like that kind of confidence in a woman. I'd like to take you out. So anybody who clearly was not my type of guy, and that would include any guy who was very hustly and rude, I didn't, I mean, I was very polite and respectful, but I I didn't put them on the list. And you weren't just looking for, as some of your friends called it, around the world in 80 lays, right? No, they teased me so much. I mean, everybody teased me. And it was interesting for me. We feel confident talking about sex, not about romance. And if I had wanted a short, brief fling, I would have stayed in London. Finding a guy who wants to see you for one night and never see you again is not a problem. That's London. Yeah, I mean, that's you don't need to travel for that, I exactly. guess. Exactly. And that was the point. I, I had this mantra, which is, it's not about sex, it's about love. Well, if it's you're looking for a romance. soulmate, I guess that makes sense. Exactly. Look, I have to say, I mean, firstly, guys are very competitive. They all pulled out all the stops to put on the best possible dates. It was like they weren't dating me. They were dating the 79 other guys. That's part of the male character is Very much. Very very competitive, determined to be the winner. They, they had a sense. You were the prize and there was very 80 contestants. Much so. And it's funny, Gary, wow. date number 55, even described it. You know, it was one time he mentioned, you know, so he said, I'm number 55. Yeah, huh? people saw you as the prize, he said to me. But but they were respectful and they were they were good guys. 
I'm talking with Jennifer Cox, who's written a book called Around the World in 80 Dates. Uh, Jennifer, you learned a lot from this, and there's a lot of women listening that would like to mix a little romance in with their travels. It's a good way to sightsee and better understand the culture. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, What advice would you give women uh, who are going to be international traveling and, and they want to just uh, be able to meet and enjoy that little inside track to the local cultures? Well, I would firstly stress all the security aspects in terms of don't just pick guys up and wander off with them. These were all people who were friends of friends. Mm-hmm. But... I mean, a general relationship point for for meeting anybody, and the love professor taught me this in Gothenburg, all relationships start with you. When you feel good about yourself, you attract people to you who enjoy that about you. Basically, we tend to go for people who we see ourselves in. So we're attracted to what we recognize of ourselves in other people. So when you are having a bad hair day or you're feeling a bit fat, Mm -hmm. you attract somebody who doesn't have a great opinion of you because that's how you feel about yourself. And travel makes us blossom. Travel tends to bring out the best in us. So your book was sort of an open uh, journal of your thoughts and the things you learned as you traveled. I really felt that writing this book was a wonderful opportunity to be very honest, but also to have people help me get through the journey. Okay, now, I just want to talk about love here, because you've been out there as a journalist studying this hands-on, you could say. Now, um, (laughs) what about love at first sight versus learning to love somebody? Do you believe in, you've dated 80 guys all around the world. Is it, how does that work? Up to date 54, I thought, I was never going to meet the one. And I thought maybe love at first sight didn't exist. And then I met Gary, date number 55, and it all just happened. You know, I thought he looked amazing. He made me feel wonderful. I could have talked with him forever. Love at first sight is feeling that you have known someone your whole life. But you then need to get... There's a chemistry at first sight. Exactly. But you then need to get to know them. And so to have that compelling attraction is only ever the start of it. The work still has to be done. Now talk to me about this issue because you know in my dating days I was dating people from all sorts of different cultures and that was fascinating but I ended up marrying somebody from Omaha, Nebraska. Absolutely. You know what I mean? I'm an American and I'm this traveler Omaha, Nebraska. Yeah. That's the opposite of travel. And I think that was a pretty smart move. Yeah. How did you factor that in? Were you intrigued by people who were exotic but you ended up meeting an American? Exactly. I mean I'm British so it was slightly different Mm -hmm. for me. Um, But I basically had no idea who I was going to end up with. I wanted to travel through different cultures because I thought this is a once in a lifetime opportunity to find out who my ideal person is. No holds barred, no distance not traveled. And who that person was, I had no idea and I was very open to finding that out. But are you more likely to find a soulmate in your culture or does the culture not matter? I think that we are attracted to, as I say, what we recognize of ourselves in other people. And culturally, we find the idea of foreign people more exotic, but we tend to stick with what we know. Now, what was the most exotic place you had a date in? Um, I think probably overall it would be going to Bangkok and going to the um, Lacrong Festival and putting the lotus blossom boats on the water with Toy the male supermodel. And, uh, Toy and the male supermodel? Male supermodel. Half Italian, half Thai. The most gorgeous guy I've ever seen in my life. And he basically took me to this was festival. Was it like lust at first sight? Would you know the funny thing was, I mean firstly I'd met Gary by then because after I met Gary well, I that, continued you dating. With Gary. That's right. Gary's 55. you got to do 80. Okay. Exactly. So Do you know every Toy the male supermodel. Male supermodel. Half Italian, half Thai. Exactly. At a lotus festival. You're putting beautiful flowers on. in the water and making wishes and it's all it's all to do with love. And But basically he, like every single one of my dates was at a crossroads and he just said, you know Jennifer, it's not easy just being a beautiful head and a pair of shoulders. I want to do more with my life. And so by the end of our date he decided he was going to work in a refugee camp in Africa and so he was a great guy and often you know on a lot of the dates we had a chance to talk about our lives and what we wanted to do with them like all travelers do when you travel you have to say goodbye a lot that's one thing's occurred to me i've met so many great people and i've said goodbye so many times you had to say a pile of tough goodbyes yeah and sometimes it was good to say goodbye and it was hard because i wanted to say goodbye and they didn't and as i said i wanted to be respectful to my dates and, and not be dishonest But one of the things that I found actually since I finished my journey is that I hear from a ton of the guys that I dated and I don't hear from them anymore as a potential girlfriend. They sort of almost treat me like a sister and they tend to talk to me about people they're seeing or relationships that haven't worked out. Well, that speaks to the quality, the color of people you set up for these dates. Well, I mean, I hope that they would all be the one and they felt the same about me. Now, you wrote this. 
The biggest lesson I learned is when faced with both love and temptation, you have to choose which you want the most. Exactly. To love and be loved by one man or to love the feeling of endlessly falling in love. Yes. Talk about that just a minute. Date 76 turned out to be my second soulmate. And I was in love with Gary, but then I met Jean DeMarco on the South Island of New Zealand and I knew I was at a crossroads. And so I had this huge steam drain journey all the way through the the hinterland of the South Island of New Zealand. And I had to deal with that dilemma. Was I going to stay with Gary or was I going to be tempted by Jean? In other words, you had to commit yourself and then turn off your lock up your heart. Exactly. Or understand that I didn't want it locked ever. And I wanted to constantly have that buzz ah. and thrill of falling in love. And do you know what? Even though I carried on dating after I met Gary, and he agreed with me, otherwise I wouldn't have ever done that to him. But I realized that I loved this man and that I wanted to be with him and that I didn't ever want to lose him. Date 55, you exactly. met Gary at the Burning Man Festival. Yep, in the Nevada desert. We were both working at a crazy dating theme camp called the Costco Soulmate Trading Outlet. And the funny thing was he wasn't even a date. He was just the camp cook. And uh, we just literally just... He wasn't set up as one of your dates? No, I know. Ah. How crazy is that? All my friends were so mad. They're all competitive journalists. and They wanted to prove they had the best contact books your in the world. Your friend set up 80 dates for I you know. and you stumbled onto the guy. There's a lesson there. I know. Fate. That's what I said. You can control it, you can contain it, but ultimately it will wiggle out and take charge. You fell in love with Gary. Gary fell in love with you on date 55, and Gary really let you go then for 25 more dates? I don't know how he did it, but yes, he well, said, he, I understand. He had you faith in your in your love, I guess. Exactly. I mean, and look, I mean, if, I'd, if the tapes had been turned, I have to say, I would have said, no way. <laughs> you stay here and be in love with me. <laughs> Fascinating travel story. We've been talking with Jennifer Cox. She is the author of Around the World in 80 Dates, and I'm sure you've got the um, wheels turning in a lot of people's heads. (laughs) Jennifer, thank you very much for sharing your uh, adventure. Rick, thank you so much for giving me the chance to share it. Thank you. Good luck. Best wishes with you and Gary. Exactly. I'll go home to him now. (laughs) Date number 55. Okay, thanks a lot. Thank you. Tell us how you've been inspired in your travels in the form of an original haiku poem. The radio section of our website at ricksteves.com has details on how to send us your submissions. Here are a few recent examples we thought you'd enjoy. Anne Creighton of Sammamish, Washington, composed a haiku to commemorate her experience climbing the Petrin Tower at dusk in Prague with her husband. She tells us it was a magical moment, away from the crowds of tourists, with a cooling breeze after a long, hot day of touring, joined by city lights dancing on the river. The night before, she learned a check word for fabulous, fantastitsky, and found a good use for it in her haiku. Prague night from aloft. Lights flourish from Karlov Must. Fantastitsky, no? And Jean Emmerich of Edina, Minnesota, sends us a tonka, which she explains is a five-line type of poem that has been written for 1,300 years in Japan and is now enjoying popularity among English-speaking poets in the West. Hers takes us to Paris. Autumn in Paris. After leaving the bookstore loved by Hemingway, I write a poem on a leaf for the river to read. Next, we're placing a call to Tuscany to get some advice from a native of one of the world's most romantic places. Thanks for coming along on Travel with Rick Steves. Io sono Lisa Andersen e abito in Nord Italia in Piemonte e io viaggio con Rick Steves. That's Italian for my name is Lisa Anderson and I live in northern Italy in the region of Piemonte, Piedmont, and I travel with Rick Steves. Io sono Lisa Anderson di Nord Italia e io abito in Piemonte e io viaggio con Rick Steves. Grazie. Grazie a te. Don't forget, you can always tell us your travel stories and let us know about the people you've met, and maybe even the people you've married, from your travels. We have a message board where you can post your comments. It's in the radio section of our website. Or you can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. If the way to your heart is through your stomach, then Tuscany is a feast for all your senses. 
Roberto Becchi is a tour guide friend of mine who lives in Siena. And while our phone connection to his home in Italy might not be the best, stay with us as we find out why life under the Tuscan sun is, for many, the height of romance. I'm Rick Steves, and this is Travel with Rick Steves. Right now we're traveling to Tuscany, specifically Siena, specifically to my favorite tour guide in Siena, Roberto Becchi. Roberto, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having us. How's everything in Siena? Oh, everything's fine, uh, as usual. Pretty beautiful, with a lot of tourists. A lot of tourists. You know, Italy is so popular these days. Any connoisseur of Italy, I think, really has a special place in his heart for Siena. In my office, when somebody says Siena, invariably somebody else moans, Oh, Siena, I love Siena. What is it about Siena? I mean, you're from Siena, you grew up there, but Sienese have a certain pride. There's some pride that even feels like medieval in its intensity. Uh, what is it about Siena that, that really has this power? I think the fact that it never grew as other cities, uh, so never became a, a big metropolis. And the, the walls, the fact that the steel has all the, the medieval walls, it gave the people a sense of pride, a sense of community, a sense of belonging that uh, in, in Siena, more than anywhere else, is uh, probably still alive, So you think just the, like in the Middle Ages. The medieval walls actually hold the people together in, in more ways than just uh, where you park your car. Yes, and, and it's a visible border. Huh. Uh, in a way, Italy as a country, uh, you, you can say is Italy's a beautiful mosaic of beautiful cultures because the people sense uh, the, the belonging of their city before anything else, before the regional, the country has uh, the belonging. So if, if somebody says, where are you from, do you say, I'm Italian, or I'm Umbrian, or I'm Sienese? I say I'm Sienese. Really? That's your first loyalty? Well, to, to other Italians, if they ask me from yeah. where are you from, I don't say I'm from Tuscany, I say I'm from Siena. I remember when Italy was created just 130 years, 140 years ago, uh, they said, we've created Italy, but now we have to create Italians, you see. That's correct, that's correct. Today we made Italy, tomorrow we were to make the Italians. And did they ever make the Italians? I think to a certain extent uh, we, we are becoming obviously a country, but we are a country of many pieces of mosaic in a way. Uh, our wealth is our variety of cultures, architecture, uh, languages, several languages, several dialects. Even Florence is one hour away by train or bus from uh, Siena. There's a very strong cultural competition, it feels like, between the two cities. That, t- tell me a little bit about that. Competition will not be exactly what uh, I would call it. I would call it a, a big rivalry. <laughs> and this rivalry actually comes from the Middle Ages, when uh, both the cities wanted to prevail economically in, in the region. And, and so they had uh, several you know, conflicts, actually military conflicts, which then, when uh, obviously the Renaissance came, uh, it was also an artistic competition, and who was going to make the most beautiful city. Florence won the battle. No, they, they won the military battle. We won everything else. <laughs> so today, Siena is, it feels architecturally stuck in the past. I mean, it's a perfectly pickled medieval town. There was a time when Siena had more people than Paris, 60,000. In its heyday, in about 1300, right? Is that the peak of Siena? Uh, 60,000 people, exactly. That was in the, in the 13th century. It actually has uh, today in, inside the city that there are 15,000 people less. Less than in the Middle Age? Hey, yeah, then. exactly, exactly. But back then, the walls really did provide protection, so you might be... Absolutely. A, you Absolutely. May be, so it became also a dormitory for a lot of people that were working outside. So you could have farmland outside, but you would live within the walls. Yes, yes. But then uh, with the 14th century and the 15th century coming, so with the technology and all, obviously there were more guilds inside. So the people lived inside because there were the guilds. The guilds. So that would be a different mm-hmm. kind of economy. Yeah. Exactly. Different economy and the main highway. Siena had the highway of the Middle Ages. It was part of the reason why Florence tried to conquer Siena, because they had the main highway that brought you to Rome, if you were going south, and brought you to Santiago de Compostela in, in Spain. These would go through Siena then? Through Siena. The road called Francigena goes right. to France. For the local economy. When I'm in Siena today, one of the most beautiful things is your incredible main square, the Campo. It went traffic-free back in 1960s, didn't it? Correct. Yeah. How, how is that? Is that? Has that been a success? It's just a, it feels like a wonderful people zone to me. It is a beautiful 
place because even if we call it square, as you know, it's not square-shaped. It's, it's heart-shaped. Uh, physically, and not just physically, that is the center of Siena. And it was too bad to have the carts going through. And so today, uh, as it's supposed to be, uh, like in the Middle Ages, uh, we have people there. So was that controversial when it first went traffic-free? No, no, not at all. Not at all. Actually, uh, to tell you the truth, my uncle at that time was a politician, and he was a big part of that change. So I take pride of it. So it, it just felt right? It felt right. felt right, uh, and today, uh, as much as we limit the traffic, uh, uh, obviously because of the delivering of the merchandise and everything, uh, we still feel that uh, we should um, probably do even a little bit more uh, you know, to have a more pedestrians, you know. So Italians are, it seems very trendy in Italy right now to be less traffic and more uh, organically grown food and so on. You've got that slow food movement in Italy. Is that still alive and well? Very alive. Very much. I'm actually a big part of it. Tell us about, Americans don't know what slow food means. Can you explain that to us? Sure, sure. Obviously, the, the word says a lot. It's, it goes against the fast food, but not just the fast food, obviously, the fast way to live. We think that uh, we should go back to eating in more natural way. Also, uh, try not to lose some of the varieties of foods that uh, otherwise, with a bigger globalization, we will lose. Uh, obviously, today in the market, uh, more than selling what is good, is good with sales. You know, um, Prince Charles was at the Slow Food Summit. The, the whole notion was there are actual tastes that are going extinct. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the products that are, you know, are extinct are brought back by the, the movement of slow food. Uh, and we do testing of it. And we do also classes. We teach the people how to taste uh, products, like the pecorino cheeses or, you know, some variety of apples. We try to teach the people how to match these foods together. I, I live in a state in the United States that's famous for its apples here in Washington State in the Northwest, and uh, somebody in that business told me that he was appalled because at the big apple convention, they didn't even taste the apples. It was just how they looked. I think uh, part of the slow food is ugly food might taste better. Exactly, exactly. We, we don't eat with the eyes. We eat with uh, our mouth and our soul. <laughs> and now, are people happy to pay a little more for that? Because it's more expensive. I think so. I think so. Also because uh, we, we should uh, understand that uh, you pay more, but you also learn that you don't have to eat too much. The, the big problem today, or in a way the oxymoron, is that we created a society where there are poor obese and rich skinny. <laughs> we should try to teach the people to eat less and better. Less and better. That's less and better. You took me to a beautiful farm. Signora Gori has a farm, right? Yes, organic farm. Yes. An organic farm. And, and what was the deal? She wanted to make her cheese that wasn't um, homogenized or, or whatever, and she had to know each of her sheep. Or what was, what was the deal about that? Can you explain how she made her cheese? Well, she, she didn't make the cheese pasteurized. Right. So it was unpasteurized cheese. And, of course, every animal, there are some animals that perform better, there are some animals that perform less. So she chose the, the, the sheep that she thought would give milk that would be the best for that kind of cheese that you wanted to make. Now, we're talking about this slow food and the idea of uh, taking things easier, but you married an American woman from Virginia, right? It's correct. And how does Patty, how does she uh, adjust to all of this? Well, of, of course, she would be the best person to say, but uh, for what I can see, she's very happy and she's uh, fully in love with uh, my culture. And uh, she's, as a matter of fact, very well accepted here and so, so far she never complained and she really loved uh, the food, she loved the taste of, of life and I hope she loves me too. <laughs> uh, I think so. I'm talking with Roberto Becchi, a tour guide from Siena. So Patty has embraced the uh, tempo of Tuscany life. What has she brought to you, Roberto? I mean, you've slowed her down and helped her eat less and better, I suppose, and appreciate good wine. What's it like for an, a Tuscan person to marry an American? Is it, what are the advantages? I think the advantage is that uh, she's, uh, as uh, I think um, most of the, the, the American women, uh, very proud of her independence. She let me live uh, without, uh, you know, certain, I would say, constrictions that sometimes uh, Italian women would give me. Ah. <laughs> so a kind of personal freedom without, uh, you know, having that pressure. So she's more independent than a typical Italian woman might be. I think so. 
and she leaving me more independent. So you have a, a relationship that's more American that way than Italian. Absolutely, absolutely. And you like that? I, I like that. I like that. All right. Hey, one of the great things about Italy for me is the passeggiata. And in Siena, that's when everybody's out strolling in the evening. Tell us about the passeggiata. How important is that to the community? It is very important because it's the window. Uh, I call it a window, meaning it's the show-off moment <laughs> for every Sienese. In a way, after you worked, uh, maybe you go back home and you change, and some people go out again just before dinner, maybe to have an aperitif. But also to go up and down uh, to the main street to meet other people, to show off in a way, to show how beautiful you are. <laughs> so everybody is out in the streets after work, before dinner, you have a drop-by for a drink, and then it's basically show-and-tell. You're, you're strolling down the street, checking out who's, who's with who and what's going on. Exactly, exactly. I, I, growing up, I never called my, my friends uh, to say, I'm meeting you in this spot. I knew where they were. Hmm. Uh, I just went out, and, and I knew they were around there. Does that continue with the young generation today, even with all the high-tech uh, ways to communicate? I would say less. I would say right. less. Uh, I said I say that with a nostalgic, uh, you know, <laughs> thought in my mind. Uh, I, I would say less, and also now uh, the streets are more crowded tourists than used to. So the tourists are, are impacting the passeggiata. They, they're definitely impacting that. They're definitely impacting that. Is the passeggiata a young adult thing, or is it a multi generational thing? It's a multi generational. I I think it's very important for the tourists to remember the uh, gender of the words, right? I mean. Don't you say bella when you see a beautiful woman or bello when you see a beautiful guy? Well, you say bella, bello, correct. Bella, bello. So you got to get that straight. That's right. Bello if he's a man, bella if he's a girl. And it's actually permissible. You can stroll through the streets and boys and girls will be commenting under their breath about each other. Probably. Italiano. Italiano, That's correct. great. A little bit of gossiping. <laughs> There's something, Italians are famous for being a little bit over the top when it comes to romantic communication. Uh, the rest of Europe calls it issimo. That's right. Have, have you heard of that? Yeah, issimo uh, means uh, to, to, to the maximum. So when it comes to romantic phrases and so on, the Italians sort of uh, raise the bar. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Our language is, is a beautiful language for romance. And Italians enjoy that. That's right. Do American women still get uh, too much attention from the Italian guys when they go there, out of their comfort zone. In the old days, Italy was notorious for pinching the women and whistling and, and so on. I, I tell you the truth, Rick. I, I was born in 1964, and I never saw in my life a woman pinched by a man. <laughs> I heard that uh, mostly from tourists. <laughs> I never saw him live. <laughs> so it probably happened, but uh, it doesn't happen today. Okay, so. So that's an old image, and actually the women I've talked to in the last... Ten years, they've all just loved their time in Italy. It's just uh, La Dolce Vita is alive and well on the streets and in the cafes and in the pubs of Italy. That's correct. And with the tour guides of Italy. That's right. All right. <laughs> well, Roberto Becchi, uh, my favorite tour guide in Siena. Do you have a website? I have a website. It's toursbyroberto.com. Toursbyroberto.com. Very easy. We'll have that on our website also at ricksteves.com. Roberto, thank you very much. Ciao. <laughs> Thank you very much. We're learning that of all the great reasons to travel, romance might be one of the best. But this trend is nothing new. In 1938, a popular novelty song of the day outlined the aspirations of one solo traveler. Here's Chicago-based singer Spider Saloff in character to tell us about the weekend of a private secretary. I went to Havana On one of those cruises For forty-nine fifty. To spend a few days I went to Havana To look at the natives And study their customs Their primitive ways While searching for some local color I came across this Cuban gent 
he was such a big sensation I forgot the population He showed me the city He taught me the customs My trip to Havana Was quite a success Had Bacardi's, I forgot the clock. We were so tardy in returning to the dock. Though I delayed it, even dropped my shawl. The Cuban made it when they made the final call. Darn it all. Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Our website has more information about this and other programs in the series, including archived audio and podcast extras. You'll also find a link to post your thoughts for other listeners, to send your email questions for Rick, and to submit an original haiku for our 15 Seconds of Fame department. It's all in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.